0: Imagine this with me. Your whole life has been preparation for a grand adventure, and the last several months have been intensely so. It's the day your adventure begins. You wake up early and try to eat your final breakfast. Though your stomach is in knots and butterflies at the same time, which makes eating difficult. Waiting for transport takes hours and nerves run high amongst the 10 of you who will soon be each all on your own. Finally, it's your turn to get in the helicopter. That's a new experience and adds to the anxiety. We fly up and over a huge mountain range with glaciers on it. The other side comes into view, a large lake and forest all around. Not knowing where you will land, you scan the landscape furiously, hoping to soak up as much info as you can. Are there any rivers or lakes or creeks? (laughs) You see some clearings, but mostly it's forest down below. And there on the other side of the lake is a long, high, rocky ridge. Oh, the helicopter is landing now. You, a large case full of camera gear and a backpack with clothes and ten items, are left alone on a pebble beach. As the last sign of civilization disappears, there are many swirling thoughts. There I was, all alone. I had so much I needed to accomplish before it got dark. Build a shelter, make a fire, purify water, and look for food. And film everything. What do you imagine I did first? Well, you might be surprised. I sat myself down on a log and I took a deep breath and I looked around. My dream for being on The Alone Show was to live, truly live the experience of surviving alone and creating a home in nature. I knew that there were nine other very capable people out there who could last a long time. And that unforeseen injury was always a possibility to take me out. I took another breath. I introduced myself to the land and said aloud my intention to build a home, be a caretaker of the land, and hopefully be the last person there and win. Winning meant that I would be the first woman to win the show, and my dream of buying land and building a home could be possible with the prize money. I set my intention to enjoy the journey first, and then I went about my survival priorities.
1: Welcome, to the Roaming the Earth podcast. I am your host, Drea Castro, and today I am here with Carly Fairchild. Carly Fairchild lives her life as a journey, taking each adventure and living it to the full. She has studied survival skills since she was a teenager and Nya ZI healing over the last seven years. Carly is passionate about basket weaving, shelter building, fire making, edible and medicinal plants and finding joyful connections wherever she goes. In 2016, Carly lived solo for 86 days and filmed herself as part of History Channel's TV series Alone. Carly is a practitioner of Naya ZI healing, teaches survival skills, gives inspirational presentations, and is an ambassador for LT Wright Handcrafted Knives. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to talk to you. I have so many questions.
0: <laughs> I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Yes, definitely. Okay, tell me about the excerpt in the beginning. What what is that?
0: Tell me more. <laughs> yeah, and uh, in 2016, I was on the survival show called Alone, and that is my journal entry after the fact of my very first day um, of starting to be alone for that show. So I wasn't allowed a journal there. Like I literally was not allowed to have a journal. Um, Really? Had a camera that I could talk to all day long, um, but I had no journal. So after I got home from the experience is when I wrote down things.
1: Wow, I thought you journaled that down. No. Oh, my gosh. That would drive me crazy because, you know, you have all these thoughts. They're so clever. Like <laughs> they want you to journal towards the camera. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> wow. That's so interesting. OK, so that was like part of the rules, like you couldn't
0: have a journal. Yep. Yeah, that was there were items we could choose from to take. And then there is a whole list of items that we had no choice about
1: with everything that you've done, not just on the show alone, but before that you, you you hike the PCT, which is a big deal. I always find through hikers to be crazy and amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and then you just, you loved bushcrafting and, and all of that. Like what does travel mean to someone like you who has experienced all of these things?
0: Travel to me is about connection with the landscape and the people who live in it. So wherever I go, I like to get to know the local environment and try to get to look, know the local people as well, um, because there's a lot of rich history there.
1: Do you travel internationally? Do you travel domestically? Like, where do you tend to like to go, and what kind of terrain do you like to go to?
0: Um, with me, there's no like one one size travel fits all. I'm always doing different kinds of things. Um, I've done just a little bit of international travel. I actually got a second chance on the alone show and went to Mongolia.
1: That's like my, you went to the two places that are on my list. I was like, ah, they're in Patagonia. Ah, they're in Mongolia. Those are the two places that is like on the top of my bucket list.
0: That's crazy. I was, had very little awareness of those two places before I was on the show.
1: (laughs) I was like, they're going to Patagonia. That's like my dream to do the W and to do that whole, oh my God. It's like, you know, yours is a little different because they put you in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. But...
0: <laughs> I got to know a very small piece of land, like the back of my hands, um, and then didn't see the rest of the country. <laughs> oh my God. Do you ever want to go back? I would like to go back. Yeah. And see, there is some amazing like rafting and hiking trips that can be done there. Um, so I definitely would like to go back whenever we can safely travel internationally again. Yes.
1: Yeah, the, the one area I've always wanted to do was either the W or the O um, mm-hmm. in that, yeah, the Taurus, tor- I'm going to butcher the word, but Taurus tor- del Pan or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's this, you know, like that, that iconic um, picture of Patagonia that you see even on the logo of Patagonia, that's that area. And so I've always wanted to go there. And then Mongolia, I've always wanted to um, follow like eagle hunters.
0: Yeah, go out to the Altai.
1: Oh gosh, it's like, I was very jealous (laughs) watching it. I was like,
0: ah, that's so cool. I got to return to Mongolia um, and be an intern for the tourist company there called Panoramic Journeys which if you want to go, I would highly recommend their company. Um, not a shameless plug, just a plug. <laughs> <laughs> but for
1: real though, like, yes.
0: For real, like, they're legit. Um, I don't think they're doing any right now, but hopefully they'll get to open up again. Um, but I worked for them and then I did a trip out to the Altai and oh. stayed with a couple of families for a few days and got to meet some eagle hunters and absolutely amazing to be out there in that landscape and meet those and stay with those families and really have an experience of helping them cook and slaughter sheep and get right, get packed up for the winter for them to move to their next spot. So.
1: Oh my God. That's like, that's like my dream. What exactly what you just said. That's exactly what I want to do. Like I did something in Nepal like that. I went to Nepal and I traveled and uh out there and then stayed with a the family there for like a week to film this documentary thing I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And it was just such an experience, you know, living in someone's home and yeah. getting to experience the culture and really really getting to know what it's like. It's just really really special. So, I get it. I'm jealous. I'm going to hit you up about that situation. In Mongolia yeah. when I go. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. So, tell me what it's like to travel like you do. like what does that look like? What does your world look like?
0: um i I guess traveling like I do, like I'm always taking survival items with me. Um, I always have stuff to cook with, a knife um just about no matter where I go, I take wool clothing with me because it's extremely versatile and durable and warm. Um, yeah, so I'm always, like, aware of what could happen and carrying stuff with me to be prepared because even though my training is in how to survive with nothing, yeah, um, it's also really nice to have some items.
1: It'd be, so, yeah, like, really nice to have stuff that you don't have to build. Yeah. yeah. Wait, so... Do you like to travel? Like, how do you like to travel? You sound like you like to travel like in the wilderness or nature. And I have different people on this show and some people really like to travel luxuriously. And some people like to travel and they camp and they backpack. Like, well, how do you like to travel? What's your
0: preference? So I guess my go-to is like road trip style, like put a bunch of stuff in the car that I need and uh, maybe have a couple places that I know I want to see but build in time to explore between places because there's always things you learn about. Like you start talking with people and they're like, Oh, go check out this waterfall. And if you've got like a packed itinerary, you don't have time to go check it out. So like, I like to do a little bit of mix of car camping, backpacking, occasional overnight without, you know, with minimum gear.
1: Um, yeah. That's crazy. Like I, 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 I've never done the whole like cowboy camping situation. And that to me scares the crap out of me. Like it scares me. Like I don't want things coming in my sleeping bag. Like yeah. I, I need a barrier between the elements and myself. And actually when I was watching, when I was watching the show and you saw that cat, I was like, this girl is crazy. Like, like we were like how is she not terrified right now like what was going on in your head I want to know <laughs>
0: what? um well I had my fire yes. I had my axe and my knife with me um, <laughs> and it was they portray it as if it could be could have been a cougar um but it's actually a smaller wild cat like the size of a bobcat it's still a cat. <laughs> well, I would have been more worried if I'd like seen an actual cougar than this wild cat. Um, <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I probably would have gone to my shelter that night instead of sleeping out. Um, but with a smaller cat, you know, I wasn't I wasn't worried about it. It was in the area; it was its home. I was a visitor there, but it felt like I was a welcome visitor there. Okay.
1: Because i would have been like if i saw if i saw like even like a little like mouse i would been like that mouse is gonna come into my and, and eat my sleepy i would have been like freaking out and i just like the cat like that's on another level <laughs> like i don't know how you did that because i wouldn't just i just would have been awake the entire night like freaked out so yeah. you're way more badass of a
0: person <laughs> I I think we fear things that we're not familiar with yeah and so because of the amount of time I've spent outdoors and spent outdoors you know like you call it just cowboy camping just out under the stars I have a familiarity with all the different noises that happen at night in different places and I've had mice run across my sleeping bag while I've been camping or hiking out somewhere. <laughs> um, the first time or two, it was scary. And then I got used to them, like, <laughs> popping over me all the way Familiar with things and then, like, knowledgeable about things. Like, I've never heard of any bobcat attacking a person. Right. Maybe it's happened, but I've not heard of it. So it's very unlikely. So it's like a mix of knowing things and then rationalizing. And even if that fear starts to like bubble up, being able to like placate it with being like, no, actually, like you can feel afraid because you're uncertain, but you know that these things are not likely to happen. There's a a choice in there of letting the fear like take over your whole system or like let it just be a little piece that's there.
1: I'll try to remember that when I'm out in the wilderness and I'll hear your voice like, don't be afraid. It's not a real it's bobcats don't attack people. Like you know, like I'll try to remember that. <laughs> that's crazy. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, because I've I've just never done cowboy camping. So you were already familiar with it. You already you had done yeah. it
0: before. So that's nice. When, when I hiked the five hundred miles of the Pacific Crest Trail, I just had a tarp to sleep under. And oh, wow. I think over like five and a half weeks, I only set it up like four times. Oh, wow. Oh,
1: my Lord. It was a
0: really wonderful season that I was in, and it didn't rain horribly at all or threatened to rain. So wow. I just left out.
1: Which part of the PCT did you do?
0: I did the Washington section.
1: Oh, my God. That's supposed to be really beautiful.
0: Wow. It's gorgeous. And it's great because while I did train for it ahead of time, that trail also trains you because the the beginning of it by the Columbia river is more gentle and it's steeper and rougher as you go north. And so your body is like conditioning as you're going also.
1: Okay. I would like to do a section of the PCT eventually, Uh, but I need to train because yeah, (laughs) I'm not there. Have you ever thought about doing the entire thing?
0: I have, but it's really, it's really rough on the body. And I find it hard to get the amount of calories that I need when I'm hiking. Um, I have a really fast metabolism. And when I'm hiking, it just spikes really high. (laughs) Um, So I would like to do shorter, another like short section of trail. Um, I would love to do the John Muir trail. Oh my gosh, yes. Definitely would need to train for that one because of the elevation it's at and how much elevation you do every day. It's insane amount.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. But it's so beautiful up there. I did a little bit of it um, around that area. So it's just, it's gorgeous. I highly recommend doing the California section or just any of the Sierras really like, oh my God, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous.
0: You can backpack for like three or four days. You can do whatever distance you want to do.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's my plan for the summer. I definitely want to do more of the Sierras because it's so close. It's only like a few hours from here and it's just gorgeous. And I've done a few really, really beautiful spots out there. And it's, you know, I dream about the PCT and wanting to do that. And then obviously on this show, I get to talk to all these through hikers and, people that have done the AT and the Continental Divide I'm always like oh, I want to do it it like inspires me to go
0: <laughs> so i got to do didn't it you learn a lot about yourself by being out in the wilderness that long like there's really not anything else you can do that is that same experience
1: what did you learn about yourself
0: Like the most valuable thing you learned. (laughs) The most valuable. I was going to say that I like my own company. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Clearly. (laughs) Um, A really valuable thing that I've learned is that we are capable of great things. And when we have the intention to do something and it's a strong enough drive we can do anything we want to do
1: I love that I mean Uh, when you're hiking for that distance you realize how strong you are
0: yeah and like everything moves you just got to keep moving whether that is two miles a day or 20 miles a day when you're hiking like you got to keep moving you can't just stop
1: I love that I love that.
0: Yeah, and to enjoy the journey. Like, I mean, I guess if I could say one just one takeaway thing yes. is to enjoy the journey, because that's that's what we live is the journey, not the destination.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Every time I talk to someone who's through hiked, or um, I talk to someone who recently walked across the entire United States and then back, and all this craziness, but he every one of those people that i've spoken to they get to the end and they go ah okay well that's the journey was so much fun i and you you think that that's the you know i finally got to the end and yes there's a little bit of that but a lot of the adventure before that is really what they remember the most because it is the journey so it's definitely like a lesson that
0: i think a lot of people that go through that learn yeah. <laughs> And it's fun to like bring back to our daily lives too. Yeah. It's not whatever milestone you're trying to reach. It's the journey that it takes to get there.
1: I love that. (laughs) You love the outdoors, clearly. Where did your love for the outdoors start? And how did it like evolve to becoming a wilderness survivalist? Like, I love the outdoors. I'm not a survivalist. Like, how did that happen?
0: Um, it started when I was a kid. I loved being outside, and my aunt and uncle had a farm that I grew up going to. So I got to like roam on the farm and help with the animals and gardens. And then when I was a teenager, my mom actually went to the, the world famous tracker school um, in New Jersey and learned, did a week long survival class. And when she came back, she showed my brother and I how to make a bow drill fire. Which is a way to make fire just out of sticks, friction fire. And I was fascinated. And she said that there was a kid summer camp I could go to if I wanted to, to learn more. And so I went to the Coyote Tracks programs um, all through my teenage years. And that's where my love for survival skills came in um, through, like, you know, your teenage years are kind of discovering who you are. And the survival skills were gave me both connection to the land and to myself and to other other peers um and it gave me this edge to work with of like a challenge because survival skills when you first start to learn them can be can be really challenging um, you know it took me a long while to get my first bow drill fire and now you know it's much easier oh my god
1: so do you think that's like the what's like the most difficult thing that you had to learn was it that fire
0: um i don't think the most difficult thing to learn is like a certain skill so much as how how to learn and how to be curious and how to try different things when what you're doing is isn't working and that's applicable to any of the skills whether it's bell drill fire Or making a shelter or trying to find plants or hunting like you got to be creative (laughs) with with how to make something work in different circumstances
1: why is wilderness survival important to you and you teach it now so why is it important to teach it to others
0: I think it's survival skills are important to teach to people because it teaches connection and a lot of us don't grow up with a lot of connect, like real connection or deep connection in our lives. And society doesn't tend to promote deep connection. And so through survival skills, people can get a deeper connection with themselves, a deeper connection with other people and a deeper connection with the land, which I feel is important because we need to take care of the land because without the land, what are we going to do?
1: completely agree. It's funny because when I feel disconnected because of what I do, obviously I, I work in the entertainment industry. It's I live in Los Angeles. Sometimes I can feel so disconnected. So I literally peace out and I like leave and I go to the mountains because that's where I feel most connected. And when I'm hiking really difficult trails or backpacking, that's when I feel really connected because all I'm thinking about are the simplest of things.
0: Yeah. Where are you going to put your next foot?
1: (laughs) Right. Right. How to serve, how to survive. Don't trip, you know, or like, where do I eat next? And how do I, you know, where do I go have a shelter? And you're just thinking about the simplest of things. And you're not thinking about all the noise. And it grounds me. And when I come back, I feel a lot more like a normal human, the way I should be feeling like a normal human being before all (laughs) the crazy, you know? So, I hear you. I hear you for sure. What do you think surviving in the wilderness has taught you the most?
0: I think what surviving in the wilderness has taught me the most is that I'm not separate from the wilderness, unless the only thing that separates it, me from the wilderness is myself. So whether I choose to engage with it or whether I try to be separate. And that can be like a mental mentality thing. And I use uh, the perspective of a caretaker to be connected to the wilderness. So if I'm hiking somewhere and I want to make a fire, I look around and see what, uh, you know, where's their deadfall or dead branches that, if broken off, will help there be more openings for maybe a new trail for the animals to go through, for example. Um, or if I'm making a shelter, like where where is there a whole lot of debris on the ground that I could make the shelter there instead of scraping off where there's like very little debris? Right. So something so it's like a give and take of like I I as a human, have to take from the natural world to live. Whether that's plants or animals, I have to take and 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 kill sometimes to live. And so if I can do that in a really mindful, respectful way, then I'm able to have more connection with the wilderness. I love
1: that. Um, Where did you learn that?
0: (laughs) Um, I mean, I've had many teachers over the years. Um, Growing up on my aunt and uncle's farm, like I learned a lot about the cycle of life and death there and how to do it in a respectful way. Um, And that, you know, you don't joke around about killing animals, like it's a serious thing and a respectful thing. Um, And then through different philosophies of different, you know, different people, like that's what I've put together for myself.
1: I love that. Yeah, because you you had to hunt. That to me is so hard. I, you know, yes, we have to, we have to kill in order to survive right? Um, But especially when you were out there, how,
0: how, how, how do you do it without? (laughs) Well, unfortunately, I didn't have very many opportunities to (laughs) eat while I was out in Patagonia. Um, I did harvest a lot of plants, and I was extremely thankful for every leaf I plucked from a plant. Like, every time I plucked a leaf off, I was saying... not not necessarily out loud, but at least in my, in my heart, like, thank you. Gratitude. Yeah. carry that gratitude in my heart and, and killing is never easy. Like the hunt can be fun, like going out and scouting an area and seeing where the animals are and what are their routines? Like that can be a lot of fun, but the killing part has never been fun. Yeah. But I'm also grateful to have that ability to be part of that cycle and to be responsible and respectful during it.
1: Yeah, because to me, I I would just, I would have such a hard time because it is hard, you know, it just yeah. that part of it is hard. and And there is a balance of trying to do it respectfully. So, yeah, I think that's very, very important for sure. For sure because yeah. some people hunt and then i'm like oh, they're so awful like what you know like the way that they're doing it is just i don't know like something bothers me inside because i guess you know it's that empathy um but yeah it's i think it's important you know when you hunt that you, you remember to like give gratitude you know to this living being that's now serving you yeah so, for yeah. sure
0: and what I love about the survival skill training I have is that it's taught me how to use like every part of the animal. Right. So, you know, I recently, I wasn't the one hunting, but I got two deer hides and I fleshed them out because I'm going to tan them and turn them into leather and make some clothing out of it.
1: Wow.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so cool. I
1: just want to follow you around and shadow and just be like, how do you do this? Like I got one day I'm going to meet you in person and just like shadow you like for real. <laughs> like I want that so bad. <laughs> Cuz I've never seen that. What? How did you learn that during your survival training in yes. like high school? I a Whoa. That's so cool. Yeah, that was one thing I was really impressed watching you. I was like, wow, she's like really skillful in like everything. Did you just use it? Like, didn't you make like a an instrument?
0: Yeah, I made a drum. I, did. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> it yeah, was such a crazy thing because here I was in the middle of the woods with little patches <laughs> of openings and I found an old cowhide and like skeleton. And I learned after the fact that that area was used to ranch cattle in the summers.
1: Oh,
0: They weren't there while I was there because it was fall going into winter, but some cow had died and mostly rotted away, except for this piece of hide. And so when I saw it, I was like, Oh my gosh, that is going to be really useful. And so I used it in all sorts of different ways until I ended up turning it into a drum.
1: I was like, so shocked. I'm like, she made a drum. Like, who
0: who knows how to make a drum? Like,
1: you know, like, okay, so let's talk about alone. Okay. (laughs) I got like, (laughs) since we're already talking about it, like the drum, like, what were you thinking? (laughs) Like, and how did you go? You know, I'm gonna make a drum out of this. Like, that's what I'm gonna do. And then you did it and it looked beautiful. <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, when I first found the hide, it was like in the first week I found it because I was exploring wow. all over the, the lakeshore I had and up the ridge just to get to know the area I had to work with and what was in it and what was available. And I found that hide. And I think one of the first things I thought about was, oh, I could make a drum out of it. <laughs> um, I have made drums in the past. And so I knew how to make one. Wow. So I was like, well, I'm gonna need to find a hollow log to make a hoop with because I don't have any like big tools to use to like cut down a bunch of little pieces to make like an octagon, a frame. anyways, lots of thoughts. But I was just like, and that's not a top priority right now <laughs> I need to make my shelter. I need to do these things. So, I started the process though because the hide was nasty. Like, I've worked with some gross hides before, and this was maybe the grossest I've ever worked with, which was funny. <laughs> so I rolled it up on a stick and I carried it over my shoulder down to the lake, way away from where I got water. <laughs> and
1: like, was it the- like covered in things?
0: Uh, there were pieces of it that were blue green colored. Okay. Okay. Like moldy. Okay. Uh, okay. And smelly. So I I put rocks on it in the lake and I just soaked it for like a week. And then I pulled it out and there was as a pebble beach, so I got some bark pieces to be like paddles and I scraped the hide with the pebbles both sides and I stuck it back in the lake for another week. <laughs> and the wet, the temperatures were cold, so like it wasn't wasn't going more bad. It was getting better. Um, in the meantime, I was starting to build my shelter. Um, getting it set up, foraging for plants every day, trying to fish, filming everything that I was doing, which, you know, you're in that in- industry, like, filming is hard work. work a lot. And I was doing that on top of surviving. Um, so I actually, the first thing I made with this hide was a bag. Oh. I, um, I did uh, know that. Yeah, they don't, they don't show everything I did with the hide, but I made a bag out of it. I made an awl out of a piece of bone. So an awl is a sharp pointed object that tapers. Okay. And I was able to hammer it into the hide to make holes. Oh, wow. And then I used fishing line that I had to sew it to make this like bag. And I used the bag to gather debris in to fill my shelter walls with because the, the leaves, debris is like leaves and loose bits of bark and wood that are on the ground. And it's, uh, it can be really insulative because it creates lots of little dead air spaces. Uh, so I, the debris there was so small, I could literally only get like a handful at a time if I tried to pick it up myself. Versus like Eastern Woodlands, you got big Oak leaves and maple leaves. Like I can get a huge, Huge pile of leaves here. So the bag was helpful. Let me get more leaves per trip. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. So yeah. I
1: think it doesn't really show you like in my head I can I I know what it takes to like, oh, I have to go gather this thing, come back and do, but like doesn't really portray what it is you know like the amount of work like you can see it but you don't really know you know the amount of work that you guys were all doing that's crazy like it's crazy but I mean one good thing is you're distracted right
0: in part there's there's definitely I think it's it can be a helpful distraction or motivation the filming like Sometimes that helped me get up in the mornings of like, all right, I got to show what I'm doing today because I want my story to be told the best that it can, which means I have to film it. Okay. I got to get up then. (laughs) Um, But it also made it harder because so much filming wasn't second nature to me. Right. so, So much energy and time and thought had to go into filming that it took away from problem solving other survival things that were going on like how could I get more food you know I tried a lot of different things and after the fact I could think of more because I had more like brain capacity to think right
1: right because you were like and also just carrying gear placing it there recording, putting your mic on or I don't know how you guys did the mic but like
0: yeah we had a, a a wireless mic with a battery pack.
1: Yeah. And just constantly thinking about it, it would drive me nuts <laughs> if I was trying to like feed myself.
0: Yeah. Imagine just filming like your daily routine at home.
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, Great, I have to go in this other room. Let me move this camera and then do it again. And like
0: well, oh wait, I have to put it in this room, show myself walking into the other room and go. <laughs> hit the camera, and then bring it in here to show me brushing my teeth. Right. Exactly. Oh, and I should probably have a close-up of the toothbrush in and I should have, like, a distance shot of the toothbrush in. And I should talk about the toothbrush in, in some manner also.
1: <laughs> was this the first time you really had to apply those, like, survival skills to the fullest extent ever?
0: It was the longest term potential that I was going into, but I have gone on survival trips with less items. Um,
1: Whoa, before. really?
0: Yeah. I've gone with just like the clothes on my back and a knife and a water bottle.
1: Wow. <laughs> oh my and
0: Lord. And I've done a couple of days with no knife or water bottle. Wow. Wow.
1: Did you find that more difficult than, than your time doing a lot? Um...
0: Difficult is always like based on your perspective. (laughs) So I think alone was more difficult. Like the other survival trips I've done, there's been difficult parts of it for sure. But alone, because of the extreme circumstance and because I only had like a limited area that I could go in, I couldn't just wander all over the place.
1: Couldn't? You weren't allowed to?
0: No, because there was 10 of us in a very similar region. Some other people were around the same lake I was on. I oh. didn't know this for sure ahead of time, but afterwards. Um, and so they don't want you going and bumping into anybody else. Right. So they set up like that rocky, that big rocky area on the lake, like don't go further around the lake that way. Oh, was I had. And because we are carrying emergency communication devices they could also know like if you cross that boundary then they're gonna you know write and say hey you gotta head south
1: oh wow (laughs) damn that's crazy okay yeah because I always wondered like I would if I couldn't find food in one area I would try to like venture off and try to like figure out where to go
0: that's one thing a lot of viewers of the show don't realize is if somebody can't find food in their spot, it's the unfortunate not luck of the draw. Like you either have the food where you're at or you don't. And yes, you can explore some within your area, but you can't just keep going. Like right. in a, if it was a real situation, I would have hiked all the way around the lake and found an inflow or an outflow where there's going to be more fish as fish like those transition areas and i would have set up there to go fishing
1: yeah yeah and yeah because definitely like if i couldn't find food in my area i would just have to try and what makes it difficult is that you have camera gear so if you did if they did say hey yeah and you could do that you would also have to like gather all your stuff move it and then come back and get all this camera gear and get this pelican box and you know like insane so uh that's that's difficult. And I think didn't they do that like one season where the guy like completely left his area and then like went to a different like completely different area.
0: That's probably... There are some people that have changed locations um, within the area. And Some seasons they have a bigger area than other yeah. a- other seasons. It just depends on, where? on how big of an area the whole show has to work with.
1: Right. Yeah. Because I was like. Didn't they had some where it was like they had like left and I'm like, that's good because that was a shitty area, <laughs> like not good. I want to say
0: that might have been Larry Roberts in season two.
1: Yeah. Something right. Like he was like in like a really bad marshy area or something. And then he went to kept hiking up and then he found the ocean. Something like that. I just I forgot. <laughs> Outside of the filming, what other challenges did you face? while you were out there how how did you try to solve it if you
0: a huge challenge I faced while alone was getting a lot of food (laughs) um so in the 86 days I was out there I got I caught six fish in 86 days and we're not talking about big fish we're talking about little fish which everyone I was extremely grateful for don't get me wrong um extremely grateful for each of those fish. Um, and I tried like all different techniques for fishing that I could possibly think of in different spots and different times of day. And I just would cast out and let it sit and reel it back in and nothing where I'd put line out and come back the next day and nothing. Um, I made a fish trap with like weaving a basket. I tried stocking stones in the shallows of the shore to make like a fish weir. I had no idea if it would work. Didn't think it was ideal placement for it, but I didn't have a better place. And so I tried it. Um, that didn't work either.
1: So you just were like starving. Basically. Holy
0: Yeah, I was eating every day. Like I said earlier, I was harvesting a lot of edible plants. Yeah. But even by the quantity, a lot, like I was eating like one bowl of green soup a day. Oh
1: my (gasps) God.
0: Oh my God. We usually eat it before I went to bed so then I could sleep better because I had food in my stomach. Oh
1: my God. How did you not? Because you were like, one of the strongest characters like i was like i want her to win <laughs> like yeah. i want her to win so bad because a you were you said you said something in the beginning she you said that you wanted to be the first woman to win and i was like yes i wanted to win you know yeah. and i did so it was <laughs> like you had like the mental capacity to to do so how like how did you do that <laughs> I would go nuts after like three days. I, excuse me, after one day, I'd be like, I'm starving. I'm going to kill somebody. (laughs) Like,
0: (laughs) Well, going into it, um, you know, a huge part of the show is the unknown factor of how long you're going to be there because you can choose to stop at any time. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And you also don't know when that winning point would be because it depends on when everybody else leaves. And that's different every season. So there's like a ballpark of like, oh, maybe at least 70, 80 days, 100 days it could take. Maybe it'll take longer this time because people will be more experienced of what's going to happen. But I also knew from other survival trips I've done that I'm almost always hungry because it's challenging to find uh an area in the in the wilderness that has everything you need with going into it with nothing. Like very few of our ancestors started with nothing. And if you think about it, like they were society, and, you know, some, even if it's just a small group, like those people had what they needed in order to live on the land. And so going into something with very little, it can be harder. To get everything that you need, you know, some landscapes have more water, some have more firewood, some have more food, some have more shelter. And to find that like perfect place that has abundance of everything and you can actually be in is, is challenging. So, like, I'm, I was used to this element of like, okay, I'm not gonna have enough to eat on a survival trip. And having that experience and having experienced fasting as well. I went into the alone show knowing if I could eat at least once a day, that I, that would be enough for me mentally to keep going. And even if that was something really little, I could keep going. So it's just like crazy, like awareness of myself and my psychology. (laughs) And then also like ability to like choose something and just stick with it. So yeah. don't get me wrong, like I was hungry, my stomach would growl and be in knots and like everything else, but I chose to focus on other things.
1: Did you ever feel the effects of that extreme hunger? Like real, like you're in pain or, or anything like that? Or were you just really just focusing?
0: Um, I don't think I ever had lots of pain. <laughs> But I also wasn't focusing on it. Right. People have talked about getting like crazy leg cramps or like excruciatingly painful stomachs. Um, And those things didn't happen to me. And I don't know if that's because of the amount of edible plants I was eating. Like I was getting a really wide variety of nutrients and minerals from them. And I think that probably helped my body cope with not having you know, maybe all the carbohydrates and pr- proteins that I would have liked to have also. Um, but I think they helped keep me healthy while I was there. And I also drank a lot of water. It's not necessarily talked about a lot. It's hydration and like how much our bodies can do if we're even just hydrated. And so I took one of my 10 items with me was I took a big metal water bottle and I was able to boil my water in it on my fire to, to purify it, make it safe to drink. And then um, it's like 64 ounces, I think, of water. And I knew if I could drink, if I drank that each day, plus whatever like soup I was having, it would be a good amount of water to keep me hydrated each day.
1: I'm still in like shock, you know, just because I know I don't do well when I don't eat.
0: Oh, yeah. I I can get hangry with the best of them. (laughs) But when you're by yourself... There's nobody to, like, express it towards. (laughs) There's, like, just the
1: bugs and the birds. (laughs) Yeah. That's so funny. Oh, my God. Uh, What do you think was the most valuable thing you learned during those 86 days or the second time you went on?
0: Um, Um,
1: Which you could talk about that if you want.
0: (laughs) uh, So the... I'll kind of like play it off of both of them. And that is that after spending 86 days alone, I realized how much I valued other people's company Mm. in a way that I hadn't realized before, because I've been, I've been a lot, like I've been a loner a lot in my life. And so it didn't, it wasn't, it didn't seem like it was a big deal to be alone for that long until I was out there for that long. <laughs> and when I went back for the second time, I really felt how much I valued being with other people. And so, you know, getting a fish hook stuck in my hand on day four in Mongolia is what ended up taking me out. I, I chose to tap out because I couldn't get the fish hook out. But I also was like, I don't like being alone for that long again intentionally so soon like it was a year later like not quite like a year like I landed in Mongolia one year from the day they pulled me in Patagonia whoa so it was a really quick turnaround and I wasn't like fully back (laughs) I mean I was back but I wasn't recovered all the way yet you know like it takes years to recover from something that extreme
1: how did you physically and mentally recover from that experience? like what
0: was that like? It had ups and downs, like having as much food available that I could eat you know was was great, but also crazy because I don't know about you, but i I definitely love chocolate and I love bacon.
1: I love chocolate. I love bacon too, but I try not to eat bacon, but like I love it. <laughs>
0: So after 86 days, those things sounded really good to me. And so I went to eat them, but they were gross. Really? They were so disgusting. I was so, like, I cried. I was so sad. Because after 86 days of no salt, no sugar, those taste buds had, like, gotten so sensitive. Whoa. Whoa. That when I tasted them, they just were like way overpowered. So you couldn't eat it? No, I, I didn't want to eat it.
1: Did you ever come back from wanting to eat it?
0: <laughs> yeah, so like that was in the first like weeks out. I feel like my, my taste buds are normalized again. I do enjoy, enjoy those things. Um, but the initial like transition time, things were weird. Like unexpected things were big and big things were fine. Just like, you never know what, what it's going to be or feel like.
1: What did it feel like to be around people again?
0: Um,
1: and like civilization.
0: uh, Yeah. I actually had a really interesting experience that surprised me. So other survival trips I've been on, I come back and I see society and I'm just like, ugh, gross. (laughs) Literally that's been my response.
1: That's how I feel.
0: (laughs) Right? Like, you're out, you're in pristine nature. You're like, oh, this is wonderful. You're grounded. You come back and everything's just, like, crazy. But again, like, I was out there so long that I had a different perception when I came back. I actually was able to see what has been created by humans with, like, appreciation. Like, wow, look at all these things we can make. Like, these (laughs) <laughs> wall even this graffiti here like
1: wow made that. <laughs> you had like all this gratitude for like this is made by someone <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh my god that's yeah. so funny <laughs> yeah
0: it took me by surprise because you know if anything i would have guessed it would have been harder to come back Cause I wasn't, you know, I had camera equipment and I had my 10 items and occasionally a boat with a couple people would come by to do a medical check. But other than that, like I didn't see anything man-made, like everything other than what I was making of like a shelter and fires and baskets and mats and different things that I was making, like Drum. from all natural materials, from sticks and leaves and plants. <laughs> like, so, to see, like, especially in Patagonia, the town that I was in after, it's just a beautiful, has some beautiful buildings in it. Yeah. Beautiful architecture. So, I was just really cool to see it. And I was also really glad to have that, like, alternate experience instead of being, like, frustrated or overwhelmed.
1: Yeah. You had, like, a greater sense of gratitude for everything, I think. I did. Except for bacon and chocolate. You were just like, get it away.
0: I still appreciated it. I just was very sad it didn't taste good. <laughs> it still, <laughs> the bacon still smelled really good. Oh my gosh. And like smells, like everything was just new to me afterwards. Like wow. there was a newness and a gratitude for everything in life. But it was just really amazing.
1: You were like close to winning. <laughs> Yes. really close <laughs> did Very you tough. did you did you know did you know like did you have a feeling like did you have an inkling of that at all and then when you found out i was like
0: oh <laughs> yeah i i knew without being told okay but there was only one person out there when they pulled me you knew- um and it
1: was a long time that's a long time
0: that's the other thing like being out there all all the noise that's in our heads gets quieted and you can know a lot more things than you maybe thought you could like me knowing that there was only one person out there like yeah there was like the logical knowing but then there's also just like knowing that isn't based on any logical sense. I guess there's different ways maybe people look at alone and that it's a competition against these nine other people. But I never felt like that was so because everybody's on their own and everybody's going to have their own journey. There's no like lineup of physical competition happening like on Survivor, you know? Right. So I felt like it was really... Like, regardless of winning or losing, like, it was my journey and my experience. And it was how I lived that time that determined whether I won, so to speak, for myself, whether I won the prize money or not. And so even with the heartbreak of not getting to go as long as I wanted to go, you know, and having I'm
1: ready to stay. I was like, she could stay forever.
0: <laughs> like, the external say, no, Carly, you're done. You've pushed it far enough. It's not safe anymore. Like was extremely heartbreaking. Yeah. And at the same time I was like relieved of like, I've made it as far as I can go. Yeah. That was my goal. Yeah. To make it as far as I could go. And I hope to win, but So many factors out there. Winning was my determination of me having done what I set out to do. I was just setting myself up for failure if that was the only goal I had.
1: What I liked about the show is because I love wilderness stuff. And it wasn't a competition with each other. It was a competition with yourself. Yeah. And that's what it is. It's about the journey of somebody in the wild and what it does to you when you're pushed to its limits, you know. So it's it's yeah, I I just found it so interesting, you know, and it reminds me of being outside, you know, being outdoors and what it feels like and and what it feels like to to push yourself to your limit. (laughs) So for sure. (laughs) For sure. So the second time you went on the show, I was so sad. I was so sad. Tell
0: us what happened and what did you feel? <laughs> uh, I got a second chance at a loan, which was amazing. And so I was in Mongolia. Were
1: you excited about
0: that? I was excited about it. I was also like, I don't know, so many feelings. <laughs> excited! Like,
1: oh no, I got to do this again.
0: But there's also a huge amount of determination of like, okay. I'm learning from what happened last time. I'm going to gain some weight this time before I go into it. So I've got that. I'm going to take, you know, I'm going to like double down on my hunting supplies. I've always shot bow and arrow a little bit, but I really started to focus on it. So I could take a bow and arrow with me to hopefully have more chances of getting gain. Yeah, was nerve wracked, all the, all the things, but also really supported because there was nine other people who'd also done it before. And so we got to hang out some beforehand. I'm like, all right, we're going to do this again. Good luck, everybody. I was doing great. Like I, yeah. in the four days I was there, then in the 86 days in Patagonia, like I wasn't even like, I wasn't hungry at all in those four days. Like I had eat and had found where I was going to build my shelter and like, designed it in my head of like this little partial into the hillside shelter it was gonna have like some dirt on the roof because in Mongolia it can get really cold yeah like negative 20 degrees was gonna like for certain happen yeah And, and wind so I needed you know I wanted to have it into the earth so that the shelter would be extra warm and so I was about to start focusing on shelter building and so I set out some lines overhanging the river that I was on so that fish could be caught while I was working. And um it worked. Came back and there was a fish on the line, and I started to pull it in, leaning out over this tree. And uh the fish was flopping all over the place. And when back in my head, I was like, oh, I need to make a fish net real soon to be able to catch the fish in so that I don't lose them. Cause they could like get off the hook, you know, with their flopping around before I can get a hold of them. You know, like my brain's always in survival situations, always thinking like, what's here right now, but what's the next thing I need to do also to prepare for the next time,
1: which is a great way to think when you're out in the yeah. wild, by the way.
0: Yeah. So pulling in the fish and the fish, I went to grab it with one hand and then to get it with the second hand. And somewhere in there, the fish pushed off my hand. I don't fully know what happened other than all of a sudden there was a sharp pain in my hand, and I had a fish hook stuck in it. So it was like right here at the base of my thumb.
1: Oh my God.
0: was <laughs> the thumb tendon, which I, I think it was in the thumb tendon.
1: But your hand is okay now, right? Your hand is fine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and so I, I, you know, again, that voice in the back of my head is like, you're done, Carly. Like, you're so screwed. And and I was like, no, I'm not. Like, I'm going to get this out. And so determinedly, I tried to get it out. I had just saw, seen some plants that morning that would help draw out infection and stop the bleeding that I thought would happen if I got the fish hook out. And I needed, like, some moments to calm myself down because my heart was racing. I was breathing heavy, just, like, shocked and, like, adrenaline cursing through my body. Because it's not only a fish in the hand, it's, like, the exit ticket to dream of being out there again. And so I, I went and got those plants and went back to my little camp setup and I tried everything I could to get the fish hook out. I pulled, I tugged, I twisted, I yanked, I, I lashed a knife to the back of my arm to help get more leverage. And like I had a basic, they give, they give each participant like a real basic first aid kit to take care of any emergency needs before they could get there. So I tried, like, there was a tick removal tool there in there. So I was trying to use that to get leverage. Your right hand, are you righty? And I'm right dominant. Oh, my God. Yeah. And it's hard It's hard to get leverage from your own body yeah. Yeah. versus like on somebody else.
1: Especially since, like, the pain, like, pulling something, you know what I mean? Like, you're having the shock of it, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I cannot.
0: And I, you know, I could have chosen to take like a multi-tool as one of my items. And some people say like, oh, if you'd taken the multi-tool, you could have gotten it out. And I'm like, you know, with everything I tried, I don't know, like, do I wish I had it to try it? Yes. But I don't think I would have gotten it with the multi-tool. Like when I finally tapped out like a day later, because I refused to tap out right away, um, without trying everything I could possibly think of. And then I was like, all right, it's almost nighttime. No sense tapping out now. Like, let me sleep and like, come to, Were you able to sleep? a a little bit. (laughs) So I had been just sleeping out in my sleeping bag those first few days. And of course, get the fish shook in the hand. Night is starting to fall and like clouds roll in. Okay, so now there's maybe going to be a storm, and I have a fish hook in my hand. Which still didn't change my mind about tapping out that night. (laughs) That never crossed my mind. Um, So I set up a tarp, literally like one-handed, to be protected from the elements if it rained that night. um, Using my mouth to like help tie knots in the cord that I had. It's like the worst, <laughs> the worst <laughs> setup I've ever done. But it worked. I <laughs> talked out the next day after like going for a walk and saying goodbye to the land and just heartbroken to have to make that choice. And it still, it took like another day to get to the a hospital because what? we're like ten hours out in the middle of nowhere.
1: Did you? Dr- they drove you.
0: They drove me. Yeah.
1: Holy. Crap.
0: Down very small dirt tracks through the wilderness.
1: Oh, a fish hook. Oh,
0: my. <laughs> In my hand. Yeah, because it was like we could leave that night, but then we'd get there and nothing would be open. So I'd have to wait till the next morning anyways, or we could wake up super early and then get to the clinic. So at that point, I, was, I didn't care. I was like, Fine wait till tomorrow I'll sleep tonight (laughs) it's already two days it's fine oh my god that's insane it took two like I, I it's hard to it's hard to remember exactly but I think there was three doctors one that was holding my arm down on the table and two that were like yanking the fish hook out of my hand After they did give me local numbing, Let me see, for and my that's hand. And the thing—you didn't
1: have local numbing, so like imagine trying to pull that out. You can't. You can't because you'll have a natural reaction to pain. I mean, there's
0: there's plenty of people that think that I could have and have pulled out hooks on themselves, but oh, good for them. But <laughs> good for them, and every situation's a little different, and unless you're in it, you don't know what's going to work or not yeah
1: especially since it's like okay maybe you can pull a fish hook if you're accessible to a hospital if anything happens you could clearly just go and they can fix it and you can have damage in there and they could fix it right away but you're out in the wilderness and if you pull it out you're planning on staying there what if there was damage
0: yeah that was a huge concern because of the placement by my thumb tendon and my there's a couple tendons right there but uh I, you know, it was in the tendon. And so I didn't want to do damage to the tendon.
1: Right. And that's the thing. It could have. And if it you could had have. it out, how would you have gone to a hospital? Or like, what if it was permanent damage? You now, it's not worth it. You know what I mean? It's your hand. No,
0: not worth it. And I couldn't survive. You know, if I was 86 days in and a fish hook got in my hand, I would probably stay a little while. <laughs> Because those extra couple days could make a difference. Right. Yeah. Day four didn't make any difference. Yeah. (laughs) To try to stay longer. Exactly.
1: Could have got infected. Oh my Lord.
0: No. You get blood poisoning tetanus, like
1: Yeah. Exactly. Well, I could
0: deal, you know, if it wasn't real survival situation, I'd deal with it, you know? hopefully it would get infected so much it could come out and then I could treat the infection. Um, Cause I, I have skills I could do that. And at the same time, not worth the long term risk when I had a different choice.
1: Yeah, exactly. I wouldn't have taken the risk of losing my hand. So.
0: Or worse. So oh, yeah. So I came back to the States and I went and got exams and they're like, yeah, you've got a slight, you know, tendon tear. Do some physical de- physical therapy, and you'll be fine.
1: So, thank goodness.
0: That's what I did.
1: Okay, so. Outside of that, what's your most interesting story you've ever had while being in the wilderness?
0: <laughs> outside of all the interesting ones I've already talked about.
1: <laughs> outside of anything on alone, have you ever had <laughs> anything else that's been dangerous or exciting?
0: Yeah, the what comes to mind is the last night of hiking the Pacific Crest Trail through Washington State. I was in the North Cascades, and I had to hike up to this ridge line, and then it was the highest point in Washington um, before you start dropping down and then get to Canada. Yeah. And um, there was a storm coming. <laughs> like oh, I'm hiking. North and this big old black storm cloud, thundercloud, you know, I can hear lightning or hear thunder and see some lightning in the distance. Is like coming my way. And I was just like hiking and praying. Like, can you just blow west? Like, just blow west. Like, there's like my inner mantra. Just please blow west. And it got really intense. And I was like, all right, I, I'm done. Like, I can't be on this ridge. It's not safe. I dropped down the ridge, set up my tarp made dinner, an early dinner, um, calmed myself down. And then I was like, oh, this storm's not here anymore. Like, it's fine. So I packed my tart back up, went back up to the trail and kept hiking to where the high point was. And the storm was way off in the distance. Like it had blown away ah. and it was clear. <laughs> and so... I set up my tarp, you know, slightly off to the side in case the storm came back in the night, but what I'd wanted to do was to sleep out under the stars on this high point, wow. and that's what I got to do. I laid out my bedroll. I don't think it was a full moon, but, you know, maybe a half moon was out, and I could see in the valleys down below, like, there was low clouds in the valleys that were lit up by the moonlight. Wow. Um, it was really beautiful.
1: That's is that your favorite hike you've ever done? Like, what's the most favorite trailer place or hike that you've done?
0: Um, I loved hiking the PCT through Washington, but I also, I have hiked the Wonderland Trail around Mount Rainier, that Yeah, is. about a hundred miles and you have to get in, get a permit and like they get snapped up within like a week or yeah. less of it being available. So you have to like pre-plan like three different alternate places because you have to pre-pick your camp your camping spot every night because it's an alpine environment so they really are protecting it and only allowing a few people to be in each area at a time yeah Um, so you have to plan a lot for it but it's absolutely beautiful to like you're in the alpine but you're still hiking up and down like the shoulders of mount rainier every day And then you get to see Mount Rainier from all these different perspectives and just really get to know it. And it was amazing. Um, If you want to summit it, I would recommend doing the Wonderland Trail first because then you'll be in shape to summit it. That's what I realized after the fact. I was like, well, now I'm in shape. Like, I'm ready to go. Just
1: climb it. (laughs) Did you do it? No, not yet.
0: (laughs) But we did, uh, my friend and I, planned it and it was really fun just a girl's trip nice. and uh, we spent a day before we started hiking driving in to different points around Mount Rainier to drop off food caches
1: yeah nice okay
0: so yeah because we did we took the full like 14 night maximum stay that you could
1: oh, that is so awesome yeah. there awesome. were
0: some people that were doing it in like eight days 10 days I'm like I want to enjoy I want to enjoy this like, yeah.
1: Take your time.
0: Sure to
1: it, So yeah, for sure. I I hate rushing through trails. I like taking my time and I'm a photographer so I have to take tons of pictures like I'm mm-hmm. like I just love it so much like taking okay. your time. Me too. Yeah, you just have to like enjoy it cuz it's, you know, for me those pictures and those videos are going to be your memories in the future and people can look back on it and your kids will look back on it and be like, wow, you know, so that's like everything to me. What is your most fulfilling or favorite moment out in the wild?
0: Um, I mean, I would say that that night in the North Cascades was one of those, you know, like I, I done, done that trip and, you know it was getting so close to the end, and there had been some huge challenges along the way, and so just the like fulfillment of like, "Wow, I've actually done this now you're going down, and I can still enjoy it you know to the fullest so
1: who is the most meaningful person you've met out while you're traveling?
0: I don't know some of the like most inspirational people to me were. Uh, instructors of mine when I was a teenager um, at summer camps and who were so passionate about the skills themselves that, um, you know, just passed along, you know, their passion ignited my passion for the skills.
1: Yeah. That makes sense. Cause like your teachers and your mentors are the people that they're so meaningful. They pass on your love and passion and then you get to take that along with you. And, uh, yeah
0: teach other people now that you're a teacher yeah great yeah, is some of them like they had skills but they also were still learning skills and so they'd be sharing their passion for learning with us um, while teaching us at the same time
1: that's awesome uh, where are you going to next
0: um, my going to is more of a I don't want to say that. I don't have any place to go to right now. I I want to create home base for myself. Okay. Like I've, been, I've been doing a lot of traveling in the last decade. Yeah. <laughs> and I, although I still want to go places for sure, I also have a really strong desire to like focus more on homesteading again and growing my own food and raising animals and like getting to know one place really well again. And
1: where do you want to do that? Were you
0: planning on doing Ohio? That is the big question. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that but, is the big question. That's challenging to answer. Um, for right now that that's North Carolina, um, Carolina Sunday. Western North Carolina in the mountains. But I also, I also desire like a bigger landscape. So I'm not sure where, where that's going to manifest yet.
1: Colorado, (laughs) Utah. (laughs) That's awesome. Cool. We're almost to the end. (laughs) So what is the most, what is, what is the one interesting item that you take with you when you travel? I think I know what you're going to say, but (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) no, no, go ahead. What is the- I, want
0: hear, I want to hear your guess.
1: It would have to be, like, your knife. <laughs> <laughs> right? I feel like that's your, like,
0: interesting item. But... Something that I take with me more places than sometimes I take my knife to is my water bottle. Ah, yes. That makes sense. So I, I carry metal water bottles, um... I have different sizes depending on how long I'm going out for, Um, but I'm always carrying water with me because I feel it's really important to be hydrated. And there's so many uses for a metal water bottle Um, to name a few. I mean, obviously you have water, but you can also use it to um, purify water in because you can use, you can put it in a fire and boil water. Um, taking off if it has a plastic lid, like take that off while you're boiling the water. But in hiking, I've actually used it um, as a first aid item when somebody I've been with has hit their head on a rock and, um, you know, gotten a slight like cut and it's bleeding. And the the metal water bottle, even in a hot environment, at least the hot environments I've been in, it's cooling. Right. like the water is cooling the metal even if it's a warm day. And so the cool metal water bottle on the head with some pressure can stop bleeding, right? And like reduce inflammation because of the coolness that just compression wouldn't do. All
1: right, that's really smart actually.
0: Yeah. And the third thing you might not think about is a metal water bottle full or at least partially full of water can be a defense weapon if you need it that's true <laughs> that's very true i've not used it as such but i'm always aware that it's at my disposal if i need it that's true <laughs>
1: that's so true that's very true yeah you can totally whack somebody or or animal that's coming at yeah. you <laughs> hopefully if you're fast enough yeah that's interesting you're the second person that said their interesting item was a water bottle
0: Ah, that's cool
1: but this person that i interviewed they travel not in the outdoors they're more of like a leisurely like hotel like hostel person mm-hmm. but they bring a water bottle because in different countries like for example i think it's like france or something you get like Maybe not, but like a European country, they have water. So you could just fill your water and you don't have to have like, you know, you, you don't have to buy water. The water's free and it's clean. So nice. tap water's clean. So yeah, <laughs> water bottle. See, very good. Okay. Is there a piece of life advice that you can give to a younger Carly, a younger you?
0: Uh i would say to know what you want to do and stay focused on it you can do whatever you set your mind to
1: i love that i love that (laughs) okay so last thing where can we find you? How do we support you? Tell us more.
0: Yeah, uh, you can find me online at carlyfairchild.com. Is my website. And you can also find me on Instagram and Facebook. Again, at carlyfairchild.com, but at Carly Fairchild. Carly Fairchild alone is my uh, public profile on Facebook. And uh, if you wanna support me, I sell baskets on Etsy. Uh, Cedar baskets is the name of my store. And I sell the Carly Fairchild Signature Knife, which is a LT Wright Genesis uh, knife that is what I carried with me on both my times on a loan. And the company is a small company out of Ohio, which happens to be where I grew up, Um, although I didn't know them while I was growing up. And so I love uh, partnering with them to support them and also to support myself uh, with this knife to commemorate my time on The Alone Show. And to, it has my signature and the quote, never give up on it, because that's my, my motto. And if anyone's interested in a healing session, you can reach out to me as well. I've started doing healing work on Zoom and have found it um, surprisingly effective. Carly, thank
1: you, thank you so much for joining me on the Roaming the Earth podcast, stories and adventures of people who are jet setters, nomads, and explorers. This is Drea Castro signing off. Stay wild. If you're interested in hearing more stories from around the globe, don't forget to subscribe, share it to your friends, and follow me on Instagram on I'm Roaming the Earth.